so we're starting a new series this week. Uh, last week was Pentecost. This week is uh, Trinity Sunday, uh, technically. Uh, we celebrate the Trinity, but our new summer series is titled The Unusual Suspects, uh, Profiles of the Prophets. As we all know, though we don't always realize, things are not what they always appear. Sometimes it's hard for us to kind of see our own circumstances or even our own lives as they really are. We often give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we often gravitate toward others who kind of share our same perspectives. It's easy to be convinced that our way is the way. And we can fall into groupthink. That is, we just kind of think like the group does and we think everyone thinks like our group thinks. And we lose the capacity to be informed by an alternative perspective or especially from an outsider. So this is especially the case with religious or spiritual matters. It's hard for us to even imagine that things aren't the way they've always been for us, that our beliefs and our practices aren't kind of the beliefs and the practices. So what we believe is Christian or what we believe is biblical and what those other people believe, well, you know about them. So to be clear, though, I'm not disparaging tradition. That is, I believe our Christian tradition is one of the most valuable things we have to keep us from veering off path. But what I am kind of calling into question this morning is our interpretation of our tradition or our interpretation of our sacred text or our beliefs or our practices. Um, We have the capacity, and we all know this is true, but we have the capacity to kind of veer off in the wrong direction. And the question is, when we've done so, how do we realize it? And who is there in our communities or in our tradition to kind of help us get back on track? This is not a new challenge. It's a challenge that we see kind of throughout the Old Testament. There are several types of characters that we have in the Old Testament. We have kings, we have priests, we have sages, and we have prophets. So the kings of Israel, of course, God's anointed leader, the one that God has kind of sent to kind of lead the people of God. The priests are God's anointed worship leaders, those who are kind of sent to kind of lead the worship service. The sages are the kind of the wise um, uh, folks full of wisdom and proverbs. They kind of interpret the text and kind of guide us along the way. However, even with all of this anointed leadership, our communities still have the potential to kind of go in the wrong direction. And this is where the role of the prophet comes in. The prophets are God's anointed gadflies. Those those pesty bugs that just don't seem to go away. That keep buzzing in our ears saying, that's not the way. This is the way. Wake up, pay attention, look at things this way. The prophets are the ones who saw things differently, who had a message from God, and they were often rejected. That is, the Hebrew prophets were not the most popular people in their communities. They were rejected because they had an unpopular message, because they held a minority opinion. Not to mention, they had a really strange way of communicating. Sometimes in riddles, sometimes with extraordinarily odd behaviors. We'll talk more about that in a second. 
What's interesting, though, is that the prophets often stood in opposition to the king, or in sometimes even in opposition to the priests. So as someone who kind of finds himself in roles of leadership in a variety of parts of my life, I don't know that I really want a prophet or need a prophet. I mean, who wants someone telling you, oh, that's not the right way to do that? Like, you know, that's nice. Can you just stop complaining for a minute? We'll talk more about that too. So we all have these people in our lives. They are the dissidents, the rebel rousers, the protesters. Though sometimes they get marginalized as nothing more than cynics, complainers, or troublemakers. This requires discernment. Not everyone who complains is a prophet. However, if we categorically rule out dissent from our context of appropriate uh, communication, then we'll rule out the voice of prophecy altogether. So whether it's in the church or whether it's in the home, whether it's in work or whether it's in like government and public life, there are those who kind of say, hey, I don't think this is the way things should be going. And it's easy to marginalize those type of people. We say, well, why can't you just support the leadership? Leadership of the home, leadership of the church, leadership of the community, leadership of the government. Shouldn't you just be on board? Well, there is something to be said about kind of getting on board and kind of helping out and working along. But there are those other voices that suggest to us that even God's anointed leaders sometimes need correction. And even God's anointed people sometimes need correction. The kings of Israel were not very good at this for the most part. Uh, they, They didn't like the prophets. The prophets kind of pestered them, always calling them to repent, saying, hey, the way you're going is not the right way. That's not God's way. What are you talking about? It's not God's way. I'm God's anointed leader. I'm the king of Israel. Can anybody get this prophet to shut up? What's what's the quote about Thomas of Becket? If somebody could just take care of that pesty priest, they go out and murder the guy. Yeah, that's what they kind of sometimes did to the prophets. So before we jump in too much further, a few uh, preliminary observations. Number one, Hebrew prophecy, which is what we're looking at mostly throughout this series in the summer, has little to do with telling the future. It's not about crystal balls or horoscopes or uh, tea leaves or some kind of Notre Dame style conspiracy or conspiracy theory. The prophets were more about truth telling. That is, they spoke truth to power. They stood up for the marginalized and they called the community to repent. That is, to turn back towards God. Number two, as I said a minute ago, not all complaint is prophetic. So don't, don't take this sermon or this series as license to complain about your church or your family or your work or your boss uh, because this, this is not that. However, if we do feel God stirring us, we, we should speak. And maybe even more importantly, because I don't think uh, the, the, the number of prophets we often have in a community are often few. We should all have an ear to hear 
that kind of constructive criticism in our lives. Uh, last observation, I would recommend a companion read for the summer. In my opinion, uh, your best option would be a couple of books by Walter Brueggemann. We actually opened the uh, service today in the call to worship with a prayer that he wrote. His books are Prophetic Imagination, Hopeful Imagination, and Finally Comes the Poet. <clears throat> so he's written a lot of others, but these are short and they're accessible. Uh, they're easy to read, yet they're also difficult. They're easy because it, it's not the most kind of complex um, writing, but they're difficult because they're kind of heavy in the sense that they're saying a lot. You can kind of mull over them. So especially Prophetic Imagination, I would say it's not just one of the best books I've read on prophecy. It might be one of the best books I've just read ever. So one of my uh, seminary professors used to profile the prophets. So kind of like, um, <clears throat> kind of like a police uh, detective or investigator. You know, what are these people like? So in our, in our folders, the unusual suspects, uh, this week you'll find um, Moses, the escape artist, known for leading a mass jailbreak from Egypt, accomplices, Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, his, his brother and spokesperson, and his protege, watch out for him too, Joshua. So <clears throat> you'll take these home with you, and then if you would... You could bring them back each week and we'll have another prophet and their profile to kind of stick in the mix. So we'll start, though, with this profile and we'll use Moses as our uh, primary example. So the first part of the profile is that the prophet is a messenger. The prophet is messenger. So this might come as, as an obvious point. That is, their most basic role of a prophet is to speak on behalf of God. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet so-and-so, and he speaks, or and she speaks. So having received the message of God, they spoke on behalf of God to the people. Sometimes to the people of God, that is, sometimes they spoke to Israel, but sometimes they spoke to other nations as well. They'd speak to Egypt, or they'd speak to the Assyrians, or to the Edomites, or the Moabites. Moses speaks to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. That's not some passive spiritual metaphor. He's actually calling on the kind of end of slavery. It's a physical, economic, and political reality. So let's, let's pause and think about Pharaoh for a second. One of the interesting things about Pharaoh as a character in the biblical narrative is that none of the Pharaohs are named. Right? It's not like the kings of Israel where you get you know, King Solomon, King Josiah, King Hezekiah, King Ahab. Every time you get reference to Pharaoh, and history tells us of different Pharaohs, but the, the biblical account is just always Pharaoh, which makes it <laughs> very intriguing from my perspective because Pharaoh then becomes the ultimate bad guy. He's like the kingpin. Like we first get introduced to this character Pharaoh in, early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, and he's the guy who's kind of has all the money and has all the power and has all the position and he's up against Abraham. And then we kind of follow, follow Pharaoh throughout the rest of the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And even though historically the Pharaohs changed, the, the sense of who Pharaoh was doesn't shift. And we get this kind of continuing character who, again, kind of serves as the antagonist of the story. So what's interesting about Pharaoh 
is Pharaoh has kind of all the position and all the money and all the power, yet Pharaoh suffers from anxiety. So this is the, this is the narrative of Pharaoh. So, so Brueggemann says this as well. Uh, Brueggemann will say that there's two kind of competing narratives through the Torah and really through, through the rest of the prophets and the writings as well. And so what contemporary readers are called upon is to be able to read that story and be able to differentiate um, those two kind of competing narratives. And one of those competing narratives is the narrative of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is anxious. Uh, he has a dream. And in his dream, it's kind of disturbing, <clears throat> and Joseph interprets it for him, and he says, you know, there's going to be lack. <clears throat> there's going to be um, not sufficient um, resources. And so here's the kind of richest, wealthiest guy on the planet, and he's suffering from anxiety. An anxiety that I think kind of, if we're not careful, can get into all of us where we're anxious about the future. Will I have enough to provide for myself or my family? Will I have uh, enough position or power to make influence? And so that anxiety then, and this is part of the Pharaoh's narrative, then feeds into this uh, myth of scarcity. Scarcity, that is, that there's just not going to be enough. Uh, there's not enough resources to go around. And so we're going to have to fight and and tooth and claw to make sure we get ours. That kind of myth of scarcity is what's always kept good people from, from behaving and sharing like they should. So in the days of, of slavery uh, in the UK and in the US, there were plenty of Christian people who said, oh yeah, I mean, it would be great, I mean, ideal if we could get rid of slavery. But who could afford it? Our economic system rests upon it. We just can't afford it. We just don't have the resources to go around. That, that same myth of scarcity fills our culture too. We're worried about whether or not our, uh, uh, we, ourselves, our children, our grandchildren are going to have what they need. We don't have the resources to go around. Now the world produces... More food than we can eat. Uh, we have economies that are so strong. California, if it were a nation, would be the eighth largest food producer in the world and the fifth largest economy. But yet we still kind of believe the story that we hear that there's not enough to go around. So this is what happens, is that scarcity, which has already fed off of the anxiety, leads into accumulation. So we try to gather stuff and hold what we have. So we accumulate and we accumulate, and we even celebrate those who can accumulate the most. Right? A couple weeks ago, uh, Bill Gates, kind of off the cuff on, on a tweet, kind of said, mentioned um, Thomas Pinker's book, uh, our Best Angels as being the, the best book that he had read or the best book you know, he had read in a decade or so. And the, the sales of that just kind of shot through the roof. And I have to admit, I was one of them. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Pulled out my phone, got on Amazon, ordered the book. Came in in a few weeks, and then I realized 
It was an 800-page tome written by this uh, Harvard history professor. I'm thinking, oh, this might be more than I was expecting. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. But, but we celebrate those who can accumulate a lot. And Pharaoh, he was the king of them all. The king of kings was Pharaoh. He accumulated everything. In fact, his accumulation went unchecked so that his accumulation developed into a monopoly so that eventually Pharaoh had it all. Now, this is a a side point, and I've preached on this before, but the inferiority of monopoly as a board game vis-a-vis the superiority of Settlers of Catan as a board game, which which is a separate sermon, but it's, but it's true for much the same reasons as the, <clears throat> the narrative of the prophet being a superior story to the narrative of Pharaoh. But we'll stick with the narrative of Pharaoh for a minute. So his accumulation reaches a monopoly. But the problem with monopoly, not just the board game, although it is a problem with it, but the problem with monopoly as, as a principle is that inevitably it leads to violence by those who have over those who don't. And Joseph, the patriarch, actually does not serve us particularly well. Genesis 47 has this story where Joseph has found his way back up the ladder again. Not not Joseph's ladder, but a different ladder, metaphorically speaking. He's, He's Pharaoh's kind of number one, making him the number two in command. And in in Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 20, there's this kind of really harsh reality. Based on his recommendation, Pharaoh had accumulated all the wealth, right? They had taken in grain from everyone, right, year after year for the first seven years to provide for the future, which was going to be incredibly sparse because here came a famine. So the first year comes... And the people come and say, hey, uh, famine, we don't have any food. Can you feed us? And they said, well, you got some money? And they said, yeah. So they gave their money and they got food. Which begs the question already because the, the grain that they had had been collected from the group. So why they had to pay to get their own grain back, I'm not exactly sure. But in any case, that's how the story went. They gave their money. The next year they came. And they said, hey, the famine's lasted. There's still no food. And he said, well, give me your money. And they said, well, we gave you your money last year. We don't have any money. And he said, well, you have some livestock. Give us your livestock, which, of course, was their only way of making money. So he gave them their livestock. And then there was a third year. And the third year, there was no rain and, again, no harvest. And they said, hey, we have no food. Can we have some grain? And they said, well, you don't have any money and you don't have any livestock. Why don't you give us your land? So everybody gave their land to Pharaoh for food. So then it was a fourth year and there was no uh, rain. And so there were no harvest and no food. And they came and said, hey, we have no food. And they go, well, you have no money to exchange for the food. You have no livestock to exchange for the food. You have no land to exchange for the food. And the people say, well, take us. We'll be Pharaoh's slaves. And so everybody ends up in slavery to Pharaoh so that he has all the money, he has all the livestock, he has all the land, 
and now he has all the slaves. It's an interesting side note that it says he took all the land except for a little piece of land that uh, was reserved for the priests. So the priests had their own land. It's interesting, isn't it? If you can control the religion of a group, you can often control the group. Because people, people want to love and worship God and they, they look to other people to kind of guide them in that process. Anybody play the game of chess? So in chess, you have the front row, the pawns. They're easily dispensable, like the youth group. <laughs> Just kidding you. It's a joke. And then, of course, you have the power in the, in the back row with the king and queen. But who sits closest to the king and queen? Is it your knights, your military? Is it your, your rooks, your, your um, physical facilities? Who sits closest to the king and queen? The bishops. Yeah. Right? This is, this is a game that teaches the royalty, nobility boys how to rule. Right? You keep your bishops close because they can keep those poor people doing what you want them to do. Give to this. Do that. Don't do that. Obey the king. Stay in your position. This is the narrow affirmative uh, this is the narrow. <laughs> Get that again. It's not the narrow affirmative. <clears throat> this is the narrative of Pharaoh, which got picked up by kingdom after kingdom, including, unfortunately, the kingdom of Israel. And it found its way through the Middle Ages and their games down to the very games we play today. Games like chess and Monopoly. They say the goal of this is to have it all. The goal of this is to kind of protect the, the singular person in power. So that's a story. And Israel says, we want a king. <laughs> and God's like, I don't think you want a king. No, no, we want a king. We want a king. Sounds like a toddler or a teenager. Again, no offense. <laughs> and so they get a king and some of the kings are good. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious to me who had their hands last on, on, the, on the biblical account, right? Because what measures a good king versus a bad king is not whether or not they, they had a lot of military success or a lot of economic success or a lot of political success, but whether or not they were godly, right? I mean, no doubt the, the primary authors of the text were the priests, <laughs> not the kings. So, so here comes the prophets. <clears throat> the prophets then come as this alternative voice. And although we have prophets before the kings, we have folks like Abraham and Moses, uh, certainly Samuel as one of the judges. Um, but the, the role of prophet really took a more prominent place in the storyline once Israel is established as a kingdom. Because now we have a king, even a king of God's people. And kings need correction. And that's what the prophets are to do. So you can think of this, um, think of Samuel's critique of Saul. Or Nathan's critique of David. Or Elijah's critique of, of Ahab and Jezebel. Right? 
Now, when you're in the role of a prophet, though, and you have a message from God, and you're having to critique the status quo, the power that is, it is helpful, and this is true for all of us, if you have a negative message to deliver, to kind of sprinkle it with a little bit of poetry, (laughs) a little bit of humor. Um, The prophets are minstrels. The prophet is minstrel. This is one of the reasons why it's sometimes hard to read the prophets if you're trying to read them and listen to them as some kind of straightforward message. Because they often like to speak in riddles, in poems, in songs. Um, They're a little off. We'll grant grant them that. But they're artists, right? Artists are a little off. This, this kind of poetic nature of Hebrew prophecy allows them to speak in indirect ways. Um, think of Nathan again and Nathan's allegory of the sheep when he speaks to David, right? So, so uh, Uriah had one wife and David had a lot of wives. And so the prophet's not like, hey, king, you ought not be taking another man's wife. Instead, he tells him a story. And if you, if you don't know the story... Of, of Nathan and David. Perhaps you know the story of, of Bob and Larry. Um, because, because Larry takes the sheep, or the, no, it's a rubber ducky, takes the rubber ducky of Junior Asparagus. It's the VeggieTales version of, of Nathan and David. But it, it works out the same way. He tells them a story and he gets, you know, a lot of righteous indignation. Like, how dare that character in the story behave that way? And Nathan's like, open your eyes, David. You are the one who's taken the one sheep from the other shepherd when you had this full flock. It's this kind of easy, not so easy way to speak. Um, so, yeah, so they often speak in riddles. And, and when prophetic voices come to us, sometimes maybe that's why we don't have ears to hear. It's hard to hear a message that's maybe not straightforward, that's a bit allegorical. I mean, think of Isaiah. Isaiah goes to speak to King Ahaz. And so here's a prophet coming into the court of the king. And he's, he's wanting to say to him, God's going to protect you from the Assyrians, so trust in God, not the Assyrians. That would have been a good thing to say. But instead, he says, a young woman's going to have a baby, and the baby's going to eat cottage cheese and honey. And before the baby's old enough to know right and wrong, all of this will be resolved. To which the king's like, yes, thank you. Who let this guy in here? And then we read that story. We're like, oh, hey, Ahaz, he should have listened to the prophet of God. Well, what was he supposed to do? What are you, I mean, how are you supposed to hear words like that? And, and to give Isaiah his due, it's not like everything had been clear to him, right? So just the previous chapter before, he had felt a call to be a prophet. And, and God said, whom shall I send? And, and Isaiah is there. Here I am, God, send me. And he said, okay, but you'll have eyes that can't hear. And they'll have eyes that can't hear. <laughs> Let me get this out in a second. Eyes don't hear. They have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, hearts that won't understand. Other words, they're not going to see you as a prophet. They're not going to hear you as a prophet. And what you have to say is not going to make a difference. I know, that's not, that's not very encouraging as, as you know, a job interview. 
you're going to be useless to me. Um, and so, of course, Isaiah's response, which is by far the best response anybody could have ever imagined, is how long, Lord, will it be like that? Because I think a lot of people would skip out, right? But then again, if, you're, if you think you're really hearing from God, you're not going to skip out, right? So he says, how long is it like that, God? And he said, well, until everything's uh, kind of torn down, but then there's this remnant. I can, I can actually hear Isaiah going, yeah, a remnant, my, my people. My youth group, right? Remnant sounds like a good youth group name. I don't know. I'm really picking on you today. I apologize. Um, but then God says, and then they're destroyed. And then the, the, whole, the whole call of Isaiah ends with this phrase. But there's a seed in the stump. Does that make you feel better? I mean, at the very least, right, that's, that's opaque, right? I mean, that's a, that's a riddle for you. And so he's like, oh, okay, God, gotcha. And then the next thing he says is, a, a young woman's going to give birth to a baby boy, and he's going to eat cottage cheese and honey. I'm like, well, who, who taught him to speak, right? Seed in the stump, God. <laughs> so the prophets, they're, they're messengers, they're minstrels, riddles, poets, musicians, and they're also a bit mad. The, the prophet as madman. The prophet did not only speak in bizarre and odd ways, the prophets acted in bizarre and odd ways. Of course, Moses fits this. He claims to have seen a burning bush. He hits a rock saying water is going to come out of it. He throws a branch into an oasis saying it's going to make the undrinkable water drinkable. If these weren't common biblical stories that you already knew, you would have a hard time accepting them. I mean, that's just not normal behavior. The prophets that would come later take this whole madness to a whole new level. Elijah, uh, the, the boy's dead, and he goes to show up. A boy who he'd prophesied would be born. Now the boy's dead, and the mom's mad. Like, I told you not to prophesy. You prophesied. I got my son. Now my son's dead. You know, come on. I thought you were a man of God. Elijah goes in and lays down on the dead corpse. Eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mouth to mouth. Just saying, that's not normal behavior. I'll speak to the youth group again. If anybody in the church says, oh, you're sick. I need to lay down on top of you. Say no. <laughs> like, we don't want anybody here laying down on top of anybody else. That is just not normal behavior. Now, if God tells you to do it, and God tells you to do it, but let me tell you, God better be telling you to do it before you start behaving this way. Things get worse with Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 20. It's a short little chapter. We don't read it very often. We never talk about it in church because there it says that Isaiah prophesied for three years naked and barefoot. The Lord says to Isaiah, take off your robe and your sandals. And so he does. And then he says, look at my prophet Isaiah. He's been over here prophesying for three years naked and barefoot to show you what's going to happen to you when you get judged and, you know, the Egyptians come and you all end up naked and barefoot with your buttocks showing. I looked that up in about six or seven different translations. They all translate it buttocks. 
the King James, the ESV, the New Living. I, just, I, couldn't get, I couldn't get around it. I was just searching and searching for some other translation. So God calls you to do strange things when you're a prophet. Prophesying three years naked, that's strange. Right? God's never called me to prophesy naked. He's never called Phil to prophesy naked. And we're praying to God he never does. Because <laughs> if he does, we're out of here. Yeah, strange for him. Uh, Jeremiah buys a new pot and smashes it. Ezekiel builds a sandcastle and then lays down next to it for days. And then he flips over and lays on his other side. Their, their, their cities were walled for protection. He knocked a hole in the wall and carried all of his luggage through the hole in the wall as opposed to going through the gate. I mean, you're starting to realize that when we read these texts, because they're often told with the prophet as the hero, we often kind of identify ourselves with the prophets, when in reality, we probably should be identifying ourselves with the, just the general population who are all looking at these prophets thinking, what are they doing? Yeah, they're, they're bizarre. They're, they're bizarre. Uh, they raise questions. This raises questions for me regarding their mental state um, and their ability to see otherwise. But I'll say this, um, we all experience various levels of mental health. There is something about the prophetic voice that suggests to me that it's, it's not the easiest thing to hear. So, so we need to have more space, more margin for those of us who are not like us, the, the, the marginalized, the different, uh, the bizarre, because it's, it's from those people that I think we might have the capacity, or they might have the capacity to hear from God in ways that we don't. So if we can get past ourselves and not kind of judge them for their oddities, we might be able to hear them for what God is trying to say through them. Lastly, well not lastly, but next. And we'll wrap it up here in a second. My notes, I have uh, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, and 0. 0.6. Kind of confused me a bit. Uh, but the prophets are martyrs, and this should not come as a surprise. I mean, given the fact that their message is a critique of the status quo... They speak in kind of bizarre, kind of hard ways to understand, and they behave in even more bizarre, hard ways to understand. Uh, the martyrs were often not just marginalized, but they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and sometimes they were killed. Jesus even said that no prophet is accepted in his own, own hometown, and even that was an understatement. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about the prophets. It's called the the parable of the vineyard. It's recorded in Mark chapter 12 about these messengers of the vineyard owner coming and some of them being beaten and some of them being killed. That's a reference to the prophets. But that's, that's something that they seem to be willing to do to kind of give their very life for this message. And, and here we go. The, the last part of the uh, profile, prophet as messenger, as minstrel, as madman, as martyr, and as mentor, the prophets weren't looking to kind of build their own platform or their name recognition. 
the prophets are just wanting the people to listen to God, to, to turn to God, to follow God, not to obey God out of some sense of obligation and kind of stringency, but to, to follow the ways of God because the ways of God are what's best for the ways of people. Like the best way to be a human is to follow God. It's kind of what we're made for. And so the prophets actually were excellent mentors. Moses had Joshua. Elijah had Elisha. Elisha had a whole school of prophets. Isaiah, when, <clears throat> when his contemporaries would not listen to him, kind of turns to the next generation, which I think is, is not just the, the remnant back in from Isaiah 6, which I think references Hezekiah and his generation, but those who would go into exile even after his death, which I think is what is represented by the seed and the stump. The stump I take to be the destructed um, city, country, temple. But the seed is the people who, who were still there and could still grow. Isaiah 40 through 66 is kind of dedicated not even to his contemporaries, but to a generation that would come later. The prophets are, are great uh, mentors. Um, last week on Pentecost Sunday, as we're talking about the Spirit and, and the role of the Spirit in the community and in the world, part of that role is, is prophecy, is, is, is moving people to kind of speak and tell the truth, um, to, to speak to one another uh, on behalf of God. There's a, there's a thread that's carried through this, and, and Phil referenced it uh, last week. But in Numbers 11, um, these other people are prophesying, and Joshua comes running and says to Moses, hey, they're prophesying over there, but they're not some of us. Should we stop them? And Moses is like, no, we shouldn't stop them. I would that all my sons and daughters would prophesy. And then Joel kind of prophesies this in Joel chapter 2, that, that in that day the Spirit would be poured out and that people would prophesy and dream dreams and see visions. And it's this kind of inclusive group. And of course, that plays out in Acts chapter 2 when, when Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about, that the Spirit's been poured out. Recently, I'd kind of referenced the idea of a priesthood of all believers, and I was trying to kind of offer some correction to how that's interpreted at times. That is that Priesthood of all believers doesn't mean that none of us need a priest. We can all go to God for ourselves because that's some kind of radical individualism that kind of separates us from one another. But a priest is someone who would go to God on behalf of others. So the fact that we are a kingdom of priests means that we can all go to God on behalf of someone else. I mean, Scripture still tells us to confess our sins one to another. That's James chapter 5. Confess your sins one to another. Um, in evangelical circles, we call that accountability partners. But that's, that's a big part of it. But what's interesting about this, this message in this series is an idea, not only are we a kingdom of priests, that is, that we all can go to God on behalf of someone, but that we're also a kingdom of prophets. We are a prophethood of all believers. That, that anybody might, at any time, speak on behalf of God. That's why we have to have ears to hear and eyes to see. 
to see the person perhaps that we not expect or the message coming from some person that we wouldn't expect, but nevertheless have kind of ears to hear them. The Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. That's the great thing about ordinary time in the church calendar. Ordinary time runs from Whit Monday, the day after Pentecost Sunday, up through Advent, and it's more than half the year. More than half the year in the church calendar is not dedicated to any particular celebration. It's just like regular time. What I love about that is that it's, it, it immediately precedes Pentecost. That is, all of our ordinary time is filled with the Spirit. All of that is time that you might hear from God. And, and you might hear from God, maybe even especially when you're not expecting it. Like you, you hear a song on the radio, or, or, or you smell something, or you're in some kind of conversation. I mean, it can happen to you in the shower, or on your commute. It can happen to you in your sleep. And you just kind of wake up thinking about it. Because there's, there's no place we can go where we are apart from God. And God wants to communicate with us and to us and through us. Now, on the one hand, I do believe in a prophethood of all believers. But I also believe that like the days of old, there are sometimes in our community still those particular ones that God speaks through on some kind of regular basis. Uh, people who, I don't know, are minstrels and mad and martyrs and the like. We have to have space for them too. 